We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. We are uh, uh, moving to a new verse, to the next verse, which is uh, uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 9, page 4 in the packet. Uh, so this is uh, now going to be Midrash number 6 of chapter 15. Everybody see where we are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the new verse, remember, just to remember the context, the previous verse, right? The previous verse was, uh, Elohim gan mikerem, that uh, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden uh, uh, to the east or from before, as the Midrash taught. Vayasem sham et adam asher yatsar, and uh, God placed there uh, the the person, uh, the human that he had that God had created. Okay, and then the next verse is Vayitzmach Adonai Elohim min haAdama kol etz nechmad lemare v'tov lemaachal. Uh, that God uh, caused or God uh, uh, sprouted, the Lord God sprouted uh, from the ground uh, all uh, pleasing uh, trees that were pleasing to the sight and uh, good to eat. The Eitzachayim Betochagan, and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden or in the middle of the garden. The Eitzadat Tovara, and also there was the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, so, I mean, just just a couple of things that are noteworthy about the uh, verse. Um, you know, the the first the, the first verb of it is a, is, a, is a challenging verb. Vaitzmach Adonai Elohim. You know, uh, 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 that uh, you know, Vaitzmach um, is that uh, is that it like sprouted up, right? So, um, uh, you know, it's really kind of you know, the, like it wouldn't make sense for the uh, subject of that verb to be anything other than God in some ways because like you know no, no other entity can can make uh, a plant sprout so if you look at the um, the Hebrew translation you know the the the, ver- the verb is translated in a way that's like not really it's no verb is ever really translated that way God caused it to sprout from the ground um, but you can see it's a kind of forced translation because it's an unusual verb um, uh, you know uh, 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 Kol eitz nechmad. So you know, what, is it, what does that mean? Kol, uh, you know, every or all uh, uh, trees. So that's 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 often a place where, where midrash will jump in and say, you know, like what what is what is kol including or potentially excluding there? Um, uh, 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 you know, we would expect other kind of vegetation to be in the Garden of Eden, uh, but we're only talking about trees here. Um, so it's so and um, 
and, uh, and and I'm not sure if there were other kinds of vegetation, and it's just singling out that there were that there were these like pleasing and yummy trees in the garden. Um, uh, but uh, but it's it's just sort of curious. Uh, I also don't know exactly what what a you know a, what the difference is between a tree that's pleasing to the eye and a tree that's not pleasing to the eye. Um, and uh, um, I also don't know exactly the call it saying a tree that's tov l'ma'achal is sort of interesting usually you wouldn't say that, that a tree is good to eat but maybe the fruit of a tree would be good to eat um, so it's just sort of curious linguistically um, right, this next verse the, uh, right, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden um, I have no idea the this concept of tree of life uh, is never mentioned before in the Torah, um, and uh, and as far as I know, it's not mentioned anywhere after in the Torah. It's mentioned a few times elsewhere in the whole of the Bible, um, but uh, but it's this sort of unique concept. The Bible, Torah sometimes does this; it like references concepts that it presumes that the audience knows something about. Right? It looks like that what it's referring to here, because if it's something that that the audience wouldn't know have known anything about, it would have said, you know. And by the way, the tree of life was this thing, right? Um, uh, or would have given a little bit of backstory about it. It doesn't give any backstory, it just says this thing's there. So that's but that's, uh, that's, that's, pardon the pun, fruit for Midrash, uh, because it, well, the Midrash is going to want to know, like, what is this tree of life? And then the second phrase there, the Eitzhadat Tovara, again, Mentioned without any backstory or explanation about what it is, it's not, as far as I know, mentioned really anywhere else other than, than in this story. Um, but it's also it, it, uh, um, linguistically, um, since, syntactically, it seems like it's missing something. It's you know, um, we there's a complete thought. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what? Right? Um, so, Not contrasting those two. So it could be, right, that, uh, uh, that, you know, and also the tree of knowledge of good and bad was also in the midst of the garden. Right, maybe it's like connected to that, but it, it, would, it seems weird, right? If it were going to say that, it would have said, the Eitz HaChaim, the Eitz Da Tovara, uh, right, both of those trees were in the midst of the garden, but it doesn't. It's, so, uh, you know, it's the the the, um, uh, the placement of these two trees uh, in connection to each other, both linguistically and geographically, um, is a little bit ambiguous here. Um, and there's, it, it feels like a, uh, I don't know the grammatical term, but an incomplete clause there about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Elliptical. Um, what? Elliptical. Elliptical, Leave yeah. Things out. Right. Um, so, anyway, um, anything else we, people want to notice or question about that verse before we actually look at the Midrash on it? Yeah, you said the verb is unusual. How, how is that used normally? How would it be used normally? Um, so, uh, so I, I guess it's I guess it, it's uh, it's passive, right? Um, so uh, so I don't think that there's any way. Um, so what's the, the active form? Right, so I don't I don't think that there is an active oh, form of it. Okay. You know, I, I, I'm just trying to think of like if, if we were to use something like that in English, okay. right? Like a, the the plant the plant grew, right? Which is a 
which is passive. Am I wrong? Right? Um, no. You know, the, 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 the plant, plant or, or the plant sprouted. Plant. What? But there's no objects. So right, exactly, right? So, so uh, well, there's no, there's no subject, right? No, no the plant is the subject. The plant is the subject. But there's no, right, there's no, right. right. So, um, uh, uh, it, it's not, it, the, there isn't something being done to the plant, right? Um, it's something is happening, uh, uh, something is happening to the plant. Um, okay, well, we don't have to belabor yeah, it. It wasn't yeah. a word I knew, and I yeah. didn't know it, it was right. another context. So, the, the, uh, 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 tzemach is usually used as a noun, uh, which is like a, you know, like a shoot or a, a you know, a, 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 a sprouting, you know, um, a sproutling or something, a sapling. Um, uh, uh, and, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, but and otherwise, it feels like it would be used in a passive way. But here, it's used in an active way, right? So that's you know, so the the heat. The, so you can see where how the English has to add in an extra word to make it make sense, right? Uh, caused it to sprout from the ground. Right? So that that the active the active there is the causing, right. right? But that's not the verb. The verb is 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 to sprout. Sprouting. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, so, um, okay. Uh, anybody feel moved to? Uh, actually, sorry. Before we go on to midrash, any other questions or comments or thoughts about the verse? Oh, hi. Um, you need a you have a packet. Okay. Um, anybody feel moved to read? I can read. Okay, great. And Hashem caused to sprout from the ground the tree of life in the midst of the garden. In what sense is this particular tree a tree of life? The midrash explains. All right, so so this is this is sort of like you know answering a, a question that you know sometimes the midrash will quote the verse uh, and say what you know why it's asking what it's asking or why it's commenting how it's commenting on the verse, but it doesn't do it here. So there, so art scrolls just trying to. Um, uh, solve the mystery um, about what this next midrash is going to be a, about um, before it. So it's 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 on the issue of you know what is this tree of life um, in the midst of the garden. It was taught. The name indicates that a tree that continuously spreads over all living creatures. Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli said in further explanation. The influence of the tree of life goes for a journey of 500 years. I just want to point out about the translation of what Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli says um, that I think that the Hebrew of it is a little bit more ambiguous than what Art Scroll adds to it. So the so the Hebrew only says Eitz Chaim Mehalech Taf Kuf Shana Taf Kuf Shana. So the tree of life. Uh, uh, journeys or extends for uh, 500 years. Okay, so so it adds this idea of the influence of it extends for 500 years. Um, that is an interpretation of what the Hebrew says, but not a direct translation of what the Hebrew says. So just so all, so all the Hebrew says is that it go it extends for or it uh, or or goes on for, which could be. Um, again, just like we talked about with that phrase mikedem, which could mean a spatial thing or a temporal thing, right? Mikedem could mean to the east or could mean from before. Here, it's a little ambiguous about mehalech. Is it talking about space? That it physically extends? It uses 
amount of years, right? So, um, so it, it extends for like a 500 year journey, right? So you could, you, you, like if you were to walk for how long the tree of life goes, it would take you 500 years to get from one end to the other. Um, or, uh, or is it say that, you know, uh, it, it, um, uh, it, 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 it exists for 500 years or that's what, that's what the, um, the art scroll suggests here, so I'm not sure what that what that means about a tree. What it's that its influence uh, lasts for 500 years could be that you eat its fruit and you live for 500 years. I don't know. Um, so it's far more ambiguous than the translation gives us. I think so. Yeah, um, but we'll just kind of hold that in the back of our minds as we as we look at the rest of what this midrash says. Okay, so so Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli says that the tree of life goes on for a journey of 500 years. Creation dispersed from under it. Rabbi Yudan said in the name of Rabbi Hudabar Eli, it is not just that the boughs of the tree of life go for a journey of 500 years, but even its trunk goes for a journey of 500 years. Okay. Well, sure. To the My arm went with not me. But it's all reaching, right. all encompassing forever. So that it, so uh, so infinity in terms of both space and time. Like that's all they could imagine was five hundred years. Uh, so it's just it's just like a stand-in for um, a, a, an incomparable, right. an incomparably long amount of time. Right. Or forever. Yeah, forever. forever right. Right. Could be forever and ever. It's a Helen's birthday. The shop. Um, right. Um, so, so, um, uh, so at, at least Rabbi Yudan, uh, who teaches in the name of Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, um, uh, uh, takes what Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli says to mean um, uh, not about the influence of the tree, but about how much space the tree takes up. Right? That um, that it's that you might have thought that what Rabbi Yehuda was saying is that it's. Uh, it's that its branches extended for a journey of 500 years. Right? It would take you 500 years to get from one end of the branches to the other or something like that, uh, but also its trunk. Um, so that, again, is a little bit ambiguous. Right? When we say its trunk goes on for 500 years, does that mean that width or length? Or I guess height is another. It becomes all encompassing. Yeah. We have to be both. What are these words? You can yeah. Play with these words, and you can because you can be infinitely tall, infinitely wide. Mm-hmm. So what's the um? Okay, so that just gave me this interesting image. So if it's infinitely tall and infinitely wide, then. Wouldn't there be a sense that it like encompassed all of Earth then, like yeah. that it's like everywhere, or like is there a way that we could take it like if we were going to do a more metaphysical kind of looking at it, like to say that then it wouldn't be because we we know that we at least have the sense that the garden is not the size of is not infinite. So mm-hmm. how is the tree infinite? Like how is well, the tree this infinite height and with if the garden if it's only contained within the garden 
so cheated. I read ahead. Oh, go ahead. You read ahead in the midrash or in the commentary? In the commentary. Okay, go ahead. So I found it interesting that it says <clears throat> there's a train of thought that it, the tree of life is the meaning of the Torah. So it's a meaning of teaching and a way of life. And then this, that would encompass all mankind if all mankind chose to accept it. So then if you're talking about infinity, then if you know, 500 is the arbitrary living forever that they can think of or imagine at that time, then if the tree of life represents the Torah and its teachings, then it can be all-encompassing, and it, and it would cover all of humanity. But I guess, but I guess the, the, still the question I have about it, one second, is, is uh, uh, if so, how could there be space for anything else? Right, in other words, like, like, how could there be a? Uh, I mean, it seems like first of all, it seems like the garden is a, is finite, like you're saying. But also, um, how could there be space for humans? How could there be space for another tree? Well, so maybe the original plan was not to have space for another tree because if they had an ape from the apple, they would know there are other things. Isn't that what we what we deem as free will? The the beginning of free will. Right, but I'm thinking about it just a little bit more. I love the I love the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm trying to be a little bit more um, literally minded about it for the moment, right? right? Which is that the verse that we're talking about implies that there was more than one tree in the garden, right? And remember, if you remember the the first class that I says that. You know, this is a teaching from my, my father-in-law, Rabbi Neil Rose, says that the, the mark of a good midrash is that you could plug it back into the verse and the verse makes sense. more sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, yeah. But you're saying the tree of life. So if the tree of life is representative of the Torah and the teachings of God, then it can encompass everything. The other trees can be, it doesn't have to take over. But the other trees are adding sustenance. They're adding fruit. They're adding, you know, shelter later on. They're adding things to live with. But the tree of life is always over you and taking care of you. Mm-hmm. So the other way I think about it to go more to like that if the tr- so you know we know because you know we, we get to cheat and we know what happens so we all get locked out right. Mm-hmm. So what if this notion of time in here? Is, is literally like a more temporal or other, like by the time that the rabbis are writing, they are taking a more temporal approach to this, like a more time-based, because the physicality isn't available, right? Either we've been locked off from it or it's in some other, you know, I don't know how much dimensional work the rabbis wanted to do, but if we think of it as, is it a tree of life in the sense of by this point, by the point they're writing, that it's temporal. So this tree is ne- is so big, and now it's not any longer in... It's no longer material. It's more time. But when it was in the garden, it was material. But they're using this... It was this huge tree in the garden, so they're using it as, like, a metaphor to say it was this huge tree, and now it's even... Like, now as we're thinking about it, it's even bigger. It's like... And now it's out of time, because we know that the garden vanishes. The garden is banned from us. So does it still continue? Obviously, the tree would have to continue to exist, right? Because would we be here without it? I mean, theoretically, I mean... Well, right. I mean, no, we're taking. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean no, notably, at the end of the story, God doesn't destroy the garden; He just right. banishes humanity from it. So, presumably, and the truth. So He right. sets it apart. So, is it a temporal? Like, is it not just an angel thing, but is it a temporal sort of? 
guardianship that is like, I don't know. I don't know why I'm going, like, I don't know what got into me today. I'm not normally the metaphysical type. Metaphysics was, ethics was my area of philosophy, not metaphysics. But I don't know. I, I, I love the analogy of it. I love this idea of it being Torah, and I love the idea of it being infinite, infinitely wide and infinitely high. But I also don't want to lose the fact that there's a metaphor here about them having partaken of it, like of them, it being somehow material so you can put it back into <clears throat> put it back into the story. I, I wonder if it's. I'm sorry. I, I, oh no no yeah. no no. Yes, go ahead. No, please. I, I lost. I you lost your journal. Right, hopefully, it'll come back. Um, uh, so, I mean, I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's possible to think about it. You know, not, not necessarily as as infinite. Um, you know, because I, you know, I think that the that that the rabbinic tradition has terminology that they can use to indicate infinity more more with less force than um than than 500 years like they could say le'olam they could say something else um but uh so 500 does have uh, does have some kind of you know finite boundary uh, but it's very expansive. It's very big, right? Um, so, in other words, the, you know, saying sort of a modified version of what we're saying, right? That that there's that um, that the Torah is unfathomably, you know, wide and deep, right, and pervasive. Um, but there is also space for other things in the world, right? And that can both be space for things that are uh, that run deliberately counter to Torah, um, which maybe it's saying the tree of knowledge is, I'm not sure. I mean, it seems to set these two things up as a, as a dichotomy from one from the other. So, it, so if, if the tree of life is, um, is representative of Torah, then does that mean the tree of knowledge is, um, represents the opposite of Torah in some way? Or is it just things that are outside the purview of Torah? if such a thing is possible, right? So, um, like, are, are there things in the world that are not, you know, that are not governed by the laws or wisdom um, of, of Torah um, that, you know, may be um, available or permissible, you know, um, or, or, or just simply part of the world and part of life? Um, so you're saying that Torah and the Torah and, uh, and the... Um, I'm knowledge. We are we're talking about. We're talking about. We're not talking about wisdom. We're talking about knowledge. If with respect to the tree of knowledge, yes, right. It's the tree, about, right. And Torah and knowledge. I mean, and the tree of life and the tree of um, of, um, of knowledge. They are different. Right. Because practically, Torah. When they say that you know we live, no, uh, it, it lasts for five hundred years. It means that it's. For us, for that, because nobody lives for 100 years. Right. No, you're talking about maybe 20 20 years lifespan. Yeah, but they, exactly, but it continues. But for us, for us, it's eternal. Right. But you're trying to say that there's a difference between one tree and the other, because one of them is wisdom, which is the Torah, comes from real life, and the other one is knowledge from Adam, from, you know, mm-hmm. so the other two trees were there. But then again, why did he? Why he did he try to uh, to keep man again, uh, uh, um, away from the, the tree of life? 
No, he didn't try to keep... Well, we haven't gotten to the verse yet. Uh, but if we fast-forwarded uh, a, a, a few verses ahead, um, what we would see is that God says uh, to man, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge. So seeming to imply um, that, that, that man can eat from the tree of life, uh, if the tree of life has fruit. Which, according to some, you know, some streams of rabbinic tradition, is that it symbolizes Torah. Which yeah. is reasonable. Uh, it's at least in part, yeah. Um, I guess another way of, of thinking about the question I'm asking is, you know, um, is are there places in existence that are devoid of God? Right? Is, is God absent from any part of creation? Some people, let's just dive deep into right. <laughs> like into like Holocaust theology. Well, because is God present in the camps? You know, is God right. present yeah. in the G camp? That if God is present, then God must be absent. Like, um, there's so much of that when you do human rights work like that. Yeah, deeper, right. Like more metaphorical human rights work around genocide. People say there's no God is absent from the torture chamber. Right. You know, like there's no God in the torture chamber. Or even that, um, or is God with us in it, but un- but not able to do anything about it? Like if the God on trial. If anyone's seen the, the God on trial, which is the scene from Night where they put God on mm-hmm. trial as yeah. responsible for the Holocaust. Right. Um, I mean, I, I guess I've always thought it not that God was not present everywhere, but that because God chose to give us free will that. That may, meant that God let didn't let, but is powerless to stop all the horrible things we are capable of doing to each other, like the Holocaust, like genocide, like torture, because God gave us the ability to decide whether we were going to live that way or we were going to live in accordance with Torah. But that does that does the the granting of free will. I mean, is, you know, there's theological debates about whether it's the granting of free will, and uh, and so it's you know deliberate act on God's part, or whether it's the inevitable outcome of creation. Right. Uh, in which case, um, you know, uh, it's not deli- it's not a deliberate yielding of God. It's it's um, uh, anyway whatever. Um, my point is that that in that in a, in a world of free will. Um, then there are inevitably places that are absent. Of, I mean, God is absent in a big place. There's a there's great Talmudic uh, uh, for passage saying, which means that uh, everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of heaven. Um, so, and, 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 and then the, the Talmud challenges, like, uh, 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 um, I can't remember the Hebrew phrase of the challenge, but it's like is you, you're implying that the fear of heaven is a is is a minor thing, right? Everything is in God's hands except for this like one little thing. But it turns out that that one little thing is actually a major thing because that's the result. That's that's the um, that's what causes all you know almost all evil to exist in the world. So it's actually um, it's it's actually a major absence of, uh, of, of God's oops. power, right? What? <laughs> a major oops, that was maybe not the place to put Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, uh, you know, so yeah, so, you know, the, the presence of free will means an absence of God in the realm of free will. 
and the realm of free will, at least for human beings, and probably for the entire planet too, if we're honest about it in our context as we're aware of this, um, is, is a major thing, right? Is a, is a major uh, uh, absence of God's power. I'm not sure I agree with that. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. It's not that he can't do something. He could do something. He could destroy the whole earth. You know, I mean, he could do something to get rid of evil once and for all, or, you know, the free will. I mean, he, since he chose to give us free will, he must have wanted us to have it, right? Right, okay. So, he doesn't necessarily think it's a bad thing, so why would he be absent from something that he gave us? Well... Uh, it's it's not necessarily like the 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 presence or absence of God isn't necessarily an answer to whether or not God thinks it's a good or bad thing, right? Like God can think our free will in general is a good thing, even though it produces bad, and nevertheless has absence abs recuses himself, recuses God's self from the sphere of free will, whether or not, whether it's going to be used for good or bad. So it's, so you're right in the sense, uh, I mean, I'm going to say you're conditionally right, because I don't know everything about God's nature, right? But um, I, I, let's, let's grant that God could re-exert God's power over free will, override free will. Um, that would be God entering back into that space. But the fact that God is, uh, allows for that space means that, um, that until God decides to enter and exert control over human freedom, God isn't present in human decision-making. So what you're saying is that the absence does not eliminate the potentiality. Well, I, I'm not. Necessi- I think that that I, I think that that's a possibility. Um, personally, I actually think that uh, that that the that the presence of human freedom um, is uh, is not a self-imposed limitation by God, but uh, um, but an, an inevitable limitation of God. Um, so I'm not sure that God actually can override human freedom. Um, uh, there there are certainly voices in our tradition. Who argue that God does sometimes override human freedom, um, uh, uh, but uh, but those voices I would say on balance are a minority. What would be an example of that? So Pharaoh in uh, in in Exodus, right? It says in the Bible that that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, and uh, which which resulted in him not letting the people go, and so. And, an argument, you know, about or an interpretation of that is that God intervened. Pharaoh would otherwise maybe have made the decision to let the people go before all the plagues came, right? But God wanted the plagues to come, and so God caused Pharaoh to refuse to let the uh, Israelites go. Using Pharaoh as a tool. Right, which which is which is uh, you know which is a, a direct imposition on Pharaoh's free will. For God to use any of us for anything, right, uh, in, in that active way, right, is a, is an imposition on our free will. Okay, so I'm not sure that there's a Jewish source for this. This is bringing in someone else. But what if we thought of the free so? Like James Luther Adams, who's Unitarian, would argue that 
the, the meaning of our have being made in the image and likeness of God is our creativity and our ability to be active in history, that we can create, we can... Sometimes it's mistaken for freedom, but I actually think creativity is a better understanding of what Adams is getting at, because he's saying we have the freedom to choose. Mm-hmm. But that's what makes us like God. So if that's what makes us like God, I guess I would go more than to what you're saying, which is that God can't override it, because that's exactly the way that we are. That is then our divine essence, that, mm-hmm. that ability to make choices, that ability to create, that ability to be active in history is actually what sets us apart as beings. That that's actually what it's meant when we say that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, that we have this ability to be creative and active. So it wouldn't be the absence of God, then it would be actually our own divine nature. Because in theory, if that's the case, then God could, just like we can... God could choose to destroy the world. God could could have chosen very differently in creation, right? And we see sort of glimpses of it when he, you know, God gets kind of mad and like Noah, you know, okay, okay, I'm not doing that again. Okay, that wasn't, maybe that was a little bit of an exaggeration, but maybe we see hints of like the terrible power of God, like as a way to say it. Like we, I think we sometimes make this image and likeness or we make God to like, benevolent in that, not in the strong, like, uh, fierce way of being benevolent, but we make God kind of, like, wishy-washy or mushy or... What's the word I'm looking for? Like, we make God kind of like God's just sitting back. Or that God's, like, instead of that, that, that choosing, that creativity is actually very fierce, that it can go either way. Like, there's a quote from Parker Palmer where he talks about that if you can ride the monsters all the way down, you enter this primordial death, this primordial depth where um, the power of everything is present. And I love that as an image of, like, it's both fierce and terrible. It's beautiful and terrifying. One thing, you know, uh, God created man, but then we... When then we regate the new God. So we want to think that God is like us. And I think we are talking about terms that they are just practically human, like including life and death. We talk about that because we are human and we are living and dying every day. Right. But in his realm, nobody dies. Hmm. So we were, we, were trying, we were trying to give God even attributes and features that are practically only human. Right. And the that's why, you know, we, we try to, um, I guess it's a way of teaching people to understand, it's complicated, so difficult to understand the essence of God, that we try to make it like a human, that's, that's why he's a king, right. a father, right. or a protector, everything, but it's only, the only just figure that we create as human, because we only have two eyes, and we have such a short life to see life, to right. learn. And, and, even, and even our mind is not, I mean, we don't have, we, have, we are so limited by many, many factors. Right. To understand God, but I, I do believe that uh, I think that they say that Dolly doesn't move without his his will. No? I mean, Dolly Boy three doesn't move without his will, mm-hmm. and I do believe that God has to do with everything. I don't I don't think he's mean. Is that we don't understand the mechanics of the whole thing, right. but I think he's everywhere, even into into evil into evil mind. He is because 
I, I wouldn't give Satan the same power of God because he's over, over Satan. Right. And even Satan has to, you know, stay to check, you know, his, his limitation. I mean, he cannot go beyond Satan. He, does, he doesn't let him go beyond that limit. He, I mean, you know, he... But isn't Satan an angel? Who? Satan is supposed to be an angel, angel. No, a fallen angel, they say. And Satan angels, and Satan angels, angels don't have free will, right? If I go all the way around, that's that whole quote. So, okay, so there's a, there's a, there's a few things here that, that I think are um, really present. I mean, the first is, uh, you know, I think that that's a really, really important point, right? That, um, you know, and, and I think our tradition... Uh, emphasizes that point by by saying that you know God's even God's name is unpronounceable, right? That there's that God is beyond uh, human knowledge or comprehension, uh, and uh, and, and uh, as as my teacher Rabbi Artson says, you know uh, God God's name is ineffable, so don't eff it, right? Um, don't try to eff it. So uh, that uh, you know so we say it in the cottage, right? right? That God is above and beyond all all praise and song. But the paradox of the Kaddish is that in the same breath where we say um, uh, that God is above and beyond all praise and song, what are we doing? We're attempting to praise and sing about God's sanctity. So so we have this kind of paradox in the tradition that on one level God is so totally other uh, uh, that that that's impossible for human beings to to talk about or comprehend. That God is impossible for human beings to talk about and comprehend. And on the other side, um, we are bechol uh, da'ehu, uh, right? We're, in all God's ways, you should know God, right? That we should that on some level we're supposed to tr- strive to understand. God's essence and God's nature, because in order to be in, you can't. It's impossible. It's very hard for a human being to be in relationship with a totally imperceivable uh, and infinite uh, uh, entity. Um, where we just don't relate that way. It's why you know all all uh, movies about animals, you know, make the animals like human beings. With just the best, the way we relate to things is as as. Uh, as personal others, so trying to understand God in the way we might understand a, a human other is is sort of like all we have, the best of what we have. The the uh, the, the uh, mystical tradition Kabbalah uh, tries to do this, um, tries to name that, say that God's essence is Ein Sof, is uh, is um, you know infinite, uh, uh, eternal, unknowable. Um, but that God also has manifestations and dimensions uh, that are more temporal, more more humanistic. Um, that God has, you know, love and power and uh, and these more um, identifiable qualities uh, that are, are the ways in which God acts in the world and relates to us. But by the way, the, the notion of God acting um, is itself a challenge to God's infinity. Right, the, uh, an infinite, eternal being can't act in space and time. Um, so that that's a big philosophical problem um, that the that that actually no one has really been able to solve. But at least the Kabbalists named it and said there's a there's a disconnect here. Um, and what they said is that uh, is that a, a mitzvah is an attempt to reconnect those things, is to bring the like temporal into the realm of the eternal. 
right? And so, and so I, people who are influenced by the mystical tradition, uh, especially in the Hasidic world, before you perform any mitzvah, you say, L'shem yichud kucha brichu ushchinte, which means for the sake of unifying the Holy Blessed One, the eternal God, right, with shchina, with God's imminent, uh, imin, imminent um, presence, right? And so by doing that mitzvah, we're connecting those 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 ideas, those entities. Um, so anyway, I, I just, um, so yes, uh, God is unknowable, and at the same time, the Torah talks about God in these, like, very human terms. Um, the second thing that just came to mind in this conversation uh, is this phrase, because the fact that, tree of, that the tree of life becomes a symbol for Torah um, is, is very prevalent in, in rabbinic and later Jewish tradition. You know, so much so that on, um, on you know, every, every Saturday morning when we put away the Torah, um, we say, Eitz chaim hi lamachazikim ba. It is a tree of life to those who grab hold of it. Right? So in other words, that, that, that the, Torah, the Torah may not be a tree of life to everybody, right? And it's a tree of life only insofar as you, as you take possession of it, right? As you choose it, right? Um, so, so that I think gives credence to the sense that, uh, that you know, the, the tree of life may be expansive, may even be infinite, but isn't that until you actually hold on to it, until you choose it. Um, the, what, what is also complicating this conversation, I think, and, and it goes to this, this whole idea of, of you know, who's created and whose image, uh, is a little bit later um, uh, when, when God gives the commandment to, uh, to, to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge, God says, because then you'll be like divine beings who know the difference between good and evil. Um, so it, it seems like there's, there's uh, some kind of uh, concern here of the very thing that the Torah says in the first place, which is that, that human beings are created in God's image, but yet eating of the tree of knowledge, as opposed to eating of the tree of life, by the way, the eating of the tree of knowledge in some ways makes human beings more like the divine. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what to do about that. It just like came bubbled up for me in the conversation um, that, uh, that, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, but it's but it's present in this story that uh, that there's something um, there's something negative that God sees in the in the eating of the tree of knowledge for that reason. So getting back to your original mm-hmm. question of is God absent from any part of creation? Mm-hmm. Have you answered it? Have I answered it? <laughs> um, oh, that's just a little question, right? You know. <laughs> So listen, I you know I, I think that I'm not sure if I have a good answer to the question, because um, uh, on on one level I would say that my my sense of God is that God pervades all of creation, um, and that on some level you know um, uh, the the kabbalistic term is late atar panuimine that there's no place devoid of God, um, and on the other hand. Um, I struggle with that for the very reasons that you brought up, which is, you know, if there's no place that's devoid of God, then how do you explain, you know, horrific tragedy? Um, and I, 
Um, and, and I and I and I um, and I don't believe that God causes or is responsible for those you know for those those horrific uh, uh, you know for something as horrific as Auschwitz. I don't think that that was God's doing. So I would ask myself, you know, like is God present in Auschwitz? And I would say yes. How is He present? So I would say God is present in the people who resisted torture, and God is present in um, in the in the um, in the in the spirit of people who refuse to let their faith die, even in the presence of the of the of the gas chambers and the crematoria. God is present in the conflict um, that that I'm sure existed among some uh, you know members of the SS, and um, uh, you know that uh, that that uh, God is present in the friendship and the camaraderie that existed among uh, inmates there. God is present. And, you know, anyway, so I think that, that, that I, you know, I could say that, but yeah, go ahead. Well, follow up. You don't believe God is responsible or caused, I think is the word you use for the Holocaust. Right. But can't you be so certain of that? I can't be certain of that. No. I have no... The reason I say that yeah. is because many horrible things happen even in ancient times. Yeah, sure. You know, the destruction of the temple, the exile, and so on. Right. These are far removed from us. Right. Holocaust is just yesterday, it seems. Right. And therefore, they seem to fade in a way. But these were, those were enormous cataclysms for the Jewish Sure, people. sure. We ought not to downplay them, especially vis-a-vis -vis something like the Holocaust. Right. And I'm, and I'm cognizant of the fact that rabbinic tradition sought to ascribe divine agency to those cataclysms. Exactly. Right. Uh, and look at, you know, with 2,000 years removed from them, you know, not not having survivors of those tragedies in our midst, um, or even you know people who uh, could can trace any you know uh, linear uh, lineal you know uh, connection to to people who experience those tragedies, I, I'm much more comfortable with rabbinic uh, explanations that you know the Second Temple was destroyed because of you know free hatred among people or or whatever it is you know that the First Temple was destroyed you know with with Babylon as a, as an agent of God's anger against the Jewish people. I'm, I'm more comfortable using that language, although I still, if I'm, if I, when I want to be ideologically consistent, I, I interpret those commentaries uh, uh, metaphorically, right? So it's, you know, that, um, that, that, the, that the temple was, the first temple was destroyed, not because God sent Babylon to destroy it, but because um, there was, um, because there was because there was an absence of of God uh, uh, present in Israelite society at the time that the sins that the rabbis say were you know they ascribe God's agency as punishment for those sins I think that there were inevitable consequences um, of a society that was mired in that kind of behavior that uh, provides open invitation to uh, to to conquest and devastation. Um, you know, I, I'm, and I, and I'm, and I'm also, I can, I can, I could make that leap for the Holocaust too, not necessarily because the Jews were engaged in sinful behavior that resulted in their own destruction, but because there were, there, there was, there was, um, present, there was the presence of, um, of, um, how to put this, uh, what's the word I want to use? There was the there was the presence of um, of evil within um, uh, within uh, European 
life at the time such that what happened to the Jews and other victims of the Holocaust um, was um, not an inevitable consequence of the prevalence of those evils within, within European life, within German life, within German society. Not, not maybe inevitable, because I don't think it's, uh, you know, if, if it were inevitable, it's really troubling for, say, our moment. Uh, but, uh, but, but possible. Right, um, so I don't need to say that God caused it, right? But I can. But um, sometimes I think that like the God language of that is, you know, that that things moved, you know, inexorably, or it, you know, the, there was a sequence of events and a pattern of behavior at which point it became hard to stop the calamity, right? Um, that the behavior or lack of proper behavior made them vulnerable to that kind right. of. Experience. Right. Sorry. No, but no, what no. if, see my, okay, so it's really interesting is one of the big fundamental differences between like being Jewish and being like Roman Catholic is that, you know, if you're Roman Catholic, you can kind of like endow Satan with all this divine power and like Satan's at work in the world, the sort of prince of darkness. But, and I always hated that. Like, that, it didn't, I went back way far. Like, I was like, oh, no, 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 because that's, lets human beings off the hook. Right. And, and I kind of see that with God, too. Like, if we ascribe even the falling of the second temple or all these things to God and not to the, to the horror that we can inflict on one another, then we let ourselves off the hook. We let humanity off the hook. Mm-hmm. And then the hope in that is that we're continually reassured that we can choose to do it differently, which means if it's all in our hands, if the, if the power to do great evil and the power to do great good is in our hands... And God says, I trust you, here, go for it. Well, so far, we're, you know, our track record, not great. Like, right? Like, so far, track record, failure. But not completely, right? Because even in the camps, there were moments of kindness. There were moments of compassion. Even those doing the greatest evil sometimes showed moments of, of kindness and care. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I wrestle with... Of course the Holocaust is the inevitable result of 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. That's having a little too much Catholic Church history in my brain. Um, in my <laughs> Because I can really wrestle with, is Christianity, one of my questions that I wrestle with, is Christianity inherently anti-Semitic? Like, is there any way to look at Christianity without viewing it in it through an anti-Semitic lens? Even if you take the most benign versions of Christianity. And as someone who was in that tradition for a long time, I wrestle with this question because I also want strong interfaith dialogue. I want us to get along. And I sit in this place of, like, last year I was a mess with, and it's happening again this year, Passover and Good Friday, sitting on the same day. And all I can think about is that would have been a day of terror in many places because they loved to stir up people to go persecute the Jews on Good Friday. Look who killed your Savior. Look who killed God. And so, I mean, I guess that's where, okay, now that we've gotten to my, like, that's where my metaphysical questions go with this, that, that I don't want us let off the hook and I don't want it put on God or Satan or, but that God is present, that God is there it's common sense, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't. I hate to put the blame on God, and I hate to put, yeah. put the blame on Satan. It's us. It's us. Yeah. It's us. It's, it's us. 
And the beauty of Torah is that it tries to teach you, you know, how to live with each other. I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of very complex, very complex concept. But um, sometimes the real knowledge gets in, 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 in trouble because it creates conflicts between the evil, the good and evil. And uh, I don't, uh, you know, we, I think we are just human beings and we are trying to understand this from our point of view. And, uh, and we, maybe we are completely wrong, but we are trying to do something better. So we are just much, much of friends in the world, and we know we can know, we, we, we can fix it. For example, we talk about the, the, what I think it makes, what makes the Holocaust so special is that these guys they were trying to destroy the Jewish people just because of their beliefs. But then when you go to the the Holocaust, to the, the Armenian Holocaust, that they killed so many people in Armenia. For what? Because economic, because territory, but also the different physical differences. Right. The, the the belief that my nation or my people or my who I am is superior. Like correct. Like the the problem with nationalism isn't that it's pride in one's country. The problem is when it gets to not just am I proud, but I'm proud and everybody else is vastly so inferior, is, 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 and I have the right to kick out what's inferior. I have the right to eradicate what's inferior. Is not the problem of, of, of uh, knowledge or ignorance? Yeah. I mean, I guess when I think about the Holocaust, I'm like, because what I was thinking when you were talking is, is the sin that God is punishing, if you were going to go that route, if we're going to go that route, so we'll go there momentarily, isn't it Christianity sin then? I mean, they claim an unbroken line of covenants with the Jewish people. I mean, that, if you study any form of Christian theology, it all begins with Genesis. So it all begins with Judaism. It all be, their origin stories are our origin stories. And then they add another origin story to tack it on, right? So if we were to take that at face value and say that somehow Christianity has some form of valid covenant with God or is, you know, that we're not going to start, like, that we should eradicate Christianity, although I've certainly had my moments of thought. Um, <laughs> I've had my moments. Um, is it that, is it, because is it, didn't it take the horror of the Holocaust for Christians to start re-examining the way they treated Jews? I mean, I mean, it, and, and Jews ended up the victims of that, but also Roma and, you know, all these things, all these move, all, all the various people who the Germans considered less than, but you know, it's very interesting, what's going to come out of these files that, are, that the Vatican is opening, what are we going to see personally, I'm like, well you know that's just distract from the current crisis <laughs> it's my cynical view, but my other view is, is are we going to see that there's an acknowledgement that there's no difference between the Holocaust and the Crusades and the Inquisition and going all the way back from the earliest days when Rome started oppressing Jews and Christians, I mean, or Jesus followers, or however you want to say it. So, like, that's where I sit. There, now we have all my like dirty laundry out on the yeah. table about like where I go because I don't know how to reconcile that given the horror of the Holocaust. So, is it how is it the Jewish people sin? Maybe well, it's Christianity uh, sin. I bet, yeah, I bet. we're talking about very broad. Right. Top yes. I think this is wonderful. I, yeah. I thrive on this kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
are different kinds of evil. Not every, not every evil act or thought is the same. For example, I think you'll find that just about every evil, however, is done by human agency. That someone has sinned. That was hoping that word would eventually jump into this conversation. Right. <laughs> when sin, uh, and what is the yardstick for sin? Well, it's the Bible, so it's Tanakh. Right. For Christians, it's the addendum to the Tanakh, right. Right. the New Testament. Right. 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 Um, the sequel. The, the sequel. sequel. <laughs> yeah. um, it is human agency. If you look at the Holocaust, it is human beings that inflicted these unutterable uh, things. Yeah upon other human beings. What bothers me more, however, that is not by human agency, is when we have a tsunami, for example, in the Pacific, and a whole bunch of people, you know, a quarter of a million people in Indonesia die. How do we explain that? That's the real hard thing. But most evil is done, I think I have an answer for that, not an adequate answer, but at least a partial answer for the tsunami situation. But the other situation, human agency, I have no problem. I have no problem. I don't accept it, of course. You know, but that's the explanation. People are evil, and we find even it's coming up in, in Genesis that, uh, and even God says, you know, that human beings are evil from their infancy. Never again will I destroy the world. There is something. within human beings that cause them to have that tendency, that proclivity. There is a concept in Judaism, just recently I have stumbled on, <laughs> and I haven't gotten a really good explanation of it, and that is the Yetzer, the Yetzer Haton and the Yetzer Hara. Yeah. I, can you say something about that? I... Right, so it's that um, uh, uh, human beings have two inclinations, an inclination for good and an inclination for evil. Um, or, you know, some people translate it as um, uh, the inclination for, um, uh, for self, the, the inclination, the, the, you know, the inclination for self-centeredness and the inclination for selflessness. Um, that's, that's, I think, maybe a better understanding of it because the Talmud often talks about, you know, the Yetzer HaRa, uh, which is, you know, literally translated as the evil inclination. Um, can have you know positive manifestations, right? So, uh, so like if it weren't for the evil inclination, no one would ever conduct business and no one would ever have children. Um, so, so it, you know, it's it's uh, I think it's better translated as an inclination for you know for selfishness and an inclination for uh, for for selflessness. Selfishness can sometimes be functionally good. Um, uh, uh, so um, yeah, I mean, the, you know that that passage a little bit later in Genesis is a is is a challenging passage um, because it does seem to imply that the that the human instinct for evil is the dominant instinct. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's the prevalent Jewish belief. Um, I think that the prevalent Jewish belief is that uh, is that you know human beings um, have have conflicting impulses, um, uh, you know, and it's possible to uh, to you know train oneself and be trained uh, to hone 
you know, an instinct for good. You know, they say, you know, uh, mitzvah goreret mitzvah. You know, performing one good deed sort of drags you in a in a path to doing more good deeds. And avera goreret avera, that is that a, that a sin or transgression drags you on a path to doing more transgression. So it's possible to train yourself to be inclined to do more good, and impossible to train to be trained to to be inclined to do more bad. But these inclinations then does. Does God place them? Did he place them in Adam and Eve? Did they acquire this kind of, and their generations after them, right. acquire this when they were expelled? No, so so, so I, I, I don't have a simple answer to that question. Um, because I think, you know, one of the things that I think is beautiful about Midrash is that there are plausible reads of the of the Torah and, and of the tradition that, that, that could account for, for any of those possibilities. You know, it says... That God placed uh, the, the, you know, first of all, the, the term that it uses in Genesis for God creating humanity is is yatsar, right? Which is the same root as yetsar, right? The, the inclination. So it's like our 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 like you know um, our ingrained, you know, our, our sort of like created. So I think that what the tradition is implying by those things is that God that God created us with both of those inclinations, which is why I think it's helpful to think of them as a selfish inclination and a selfless inclination, um, because human beings have both of those things. Like we are, we are not only by, we're not only designed, we're sort of unique among animals in, in some ways for this, I think, although there's, there's evidence to suggest that there are altruistic behaviors in other places in the animal kingdom too. Um, but that, that we are, uh, we are uh, uh, designed to be, you know, inward focused and outward focused. Um, so, uh, um, so yeah, I mean, that's the simplest answer I give. Is that I think that's sort of like baked into the DNA from the beginning. Um, now, you know, uh, some of that question, some of my answer to that question, you know, involves my answer, my my thoughts about the relationship between creation and evolution. Um, so, I think that what I would say is that we weren't necessarily created with those instincts, but we evolved to possess them. Um, uh, in, you know, in, in the way that they also are present in other uh, species in the animal kingdom, uh, maybe in different ways or in different degrees, but uh, but but are present. Um, and in which case, it's not necessarily the the intentional design of God that those things are part of human life, but uh, but a, but sort of a consequence of of how our species evolved. Um, which is which which might help account for the the seeming surprise that God has at, at human evil in the in the flood story right or or of human behavior even in the Garden of Eden right it does not seem like God knows what's going to happen when God says okay you can eat from any tree but don't eat from that tree right uh, and then inevitably human beings ate from that tree right and, and God seems surprised by that behavior um, so I think that that actually is a really good accounting for, you know, an evolutionary perspective that God, you know, kind of like set the wheels in motion and is a presence that we can, to, to use the terminology, that we can, we can grab onto, we can follow, right, uh, God's lead, uh, but, uh, but, but, isn't, but isn't driving our, uh, our, our, um, our development. Um, the reason I brought that up is yeah. because I've, I've read... Um, not long ago, this book by um, Solomon Schechter, mm-hmm. uh, Aspects of Rabbinic um, Theology, theology mm-hmm. and he brings up the yes sir concept. And I would say a good 20, maybe even a quarter of the book, he refers to it. I have to go yeah. back and read it because, it, and he keeps bringing it back and back. And while I'm reading that, 
I see, of course, that he died in 19, highly respected rabbi, dies in 1915. Right. And I'm thinking, what if he had lived in 1945? Right. You know, what he's saying here, he could probably say, well, I put it all there. It's right in that book right. which he wrote about 1900 or so. And he, he wouldn't have been surprised. He would have been saddened, but he wouldn't have been surprised. Right. I'm sure he wouldn't have been surprised. And, and in some ways, for some of the reasons that you're saying, because, because you know, the, I don't know about inevitable, but it was a... a, a, a uh, you know, if you follow the thread, a, a, a pretty uh, plausible outcome of you know uh, centuries of, of uh, ingrained European anti-Semitism, uh, which he was all too familiar with. You know, even in the time that he, I mean, he lived through the Dreyfus affair, and he lived, so um, actually, I think when he was born, but he probably um, he died in 1915. He about 1954. Dreyfus affair was he was born in 1854, so he was born after the Dreyfus yeah. So, but anyway, I'm sure he knew of it. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, but and and you know, presence, pre- you know, alive for um, uh, for some of the like, you know, uh, bloodiest pogroms in, in Russia. Anyway, so um, you know, th- this is all part of what was he American born? No, he was uh, 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 he was German, I think. Uh, I think he lived in England for a time. He came uh, to the United States ultimately. Yeah, and then um, was the chancellor of the of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, Dreyfus, he wouldn't have been alive for the Dreyfus. He wouldn't have been alive. Dreyfus, 1839, something like that? No, because Alfred, no, because Alfred Dreyfus was born in 1859 and the died in 1935. Yeah. What? The Dreyfus affair was the 1890s. So they would have been. Yeah, so he would have been alive during the Dreyfus affair. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. So, right. Uh, okay, 1894. 1894. Okay, I had the, I had the nine and the three backwards. Um, yeah. So, um, anyway, my, my point is, um, so what, what, he's, what, he's, what he is uh, reflecting in that book, he's, he's absolutely right. It is a prevalent part of rabbinic theology that we have these, these two instincts. Um, and uh, um, I, I don't think I, I think that the, that you know it's sort of like uh, like Star Wars is the Force you know is that it's not that the dark side is more powerful than the light, uh, but it's but it's uh, but it's easier to give into the temptation to follow that path. Um, so it's uh, it's it you know our um, uh, uh, our 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 uh, it, so it's possible that that our um, uh, you know that. Um, at least initially, um, it's it's sort of like easier to give in to those temptations to um, to to you know follow the the um, the you know the, the inclination. The people, the right? um, I think that, that that idea is present in in rabbinic theology that um, uh, that uh, uh, not necessarily that we are you know um, not necessarily that we're predisposed to evil. Um, but that on some level, following the evil path is more tempting, um, more more you know immediately gratifying, um, and so therefore it's uh, you know that, that's I mean that's why it's more tempting is because it's more immediately gratifying, um, which is why I also think that like phrasing them not necessarily as good and evil, but as uh, as like selfishness and selflessness um, is usually. Wouldn't selfishness be evil? Not always. 
Um, there are some things that I do for myself that are that are that are good or enable me to do more good, right? So th- that the Talmud talks about that. It says if it weren't if you know, God experimented once, it says they you know, like or at least did a thought experiment. I can't remember the actual text. That, you know, remove the Yetzirah from the world, the the, the selfish inclination, mm-hmm. and nobody engaged in business and nobody procreated. Uh, you know, and um, uh, you know nobody ate. Um, right, so it's a, there, there are there are there are selfish urges that we have that are that are not bad. Um, well, I would give a more restricted meaning than just selfish. I have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting to bring it to a more mundane. It's often with with campers and that kind of thing. With what? With ca- kids who are at camp or at Jewish camps, and they don't come to me and that Yitzchak is gossiping. I mean, it comes right down to... Well, when you're doing something to the detriment of others, that's what right. I'm thinking of, by selfishness. That, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't think selfishness is doing something to the detriment of others. I think it oh. can be to the detriment yeah. of others, right. but it's not necessarily to the detriment of others. Right. Um, just because you're doing something for yourself doesn't mean it's hurting someone else. No. Right. Yeah. And that would not be evil. Right. And then... You know, I think that, you know, if we came like that when we, um, we, when we lost our divine presence. Because when we were like him... There was, no, there was no need for that. But then we became human beings, three-dimensional, and then those snake, you know, to me, represents temptation. Right. Because we are just on the ground. Now we have needs. But in the case, uh, and those snake comes and, you know, tells you, you can, you know, it's not exactly those snake, it's a temptation. Mm-hmm. We're tempted to do something, to try, you know. Because other than Eve, they, are supposed to be, they, were, still, they were supposed to be still very pure, Living evil, but then how how comes that Eve? You know she was misled to eat, and, and then the, I mean that's which 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 uh, which uh, which uh, chose uh, Eve because it's better than Adam. Right. I mean we put the blame on Eve and instead of Adam, our weak our weak side quotation marks. But I feel that because we we became human beings, at that very moment we created needs, and you when we were under his care, he was giving us everything. Mm-hmm. But then now we're on our own. And as you said, we have self-preservation, self-preservation, everything. Mm-hmm. Then we start thinking about ourselves, and then we start from there, you know, branching into from good into into evil. But I think because we lost our, I mean, I don't think I don't know if he has the same plans in heaven where everybody is, you know, they don't have a body, they don't have needs, right? Cause. Right. Um, so I guess I, I guess I have a couple thoughts about about all this. You know, the um, you know one is um, uh, that it is um, uh, you know that that it's that it's possible that the you know that the selfish urge or the our appetites or you know it are uh, are a, a stronger inclination in human beings. My father-in-law also says you know if it, if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't be a mitzvah. Right, so the the right. In other words, like we're only commanded to do things that we wouldn't naturally wouldn't naturally or inevitably do ourselves. Right, like it's not it's not human nature to to observe Shabbat. Right, uh, if it were human nature to observe Shabbat, we wouldn't need a commandment to observe Shabbat. So, um, so I think that that's that that's present here. Um, is that it's you know we we have to make deliberate choices to 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 do good, um, which is also. Possibly why you know the tradition formulates as it's chaim he lemachazikim ba. You have to make a choice to to follow. If you make that choice, it is life nourishing and life affirming, uh, not just for you, but for everybody else. Which I'll come back to that in one second. Uh, but it has to be a deliberate choice. Um, the second thing I would say is, 
you know, it's, 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 it's um, one of the things that we have to grapple with about the Holocaust is that I don't think that anybody who was involved in, in, in perpetrating the crimes of the Holocaust um, thought that what they were doing was evil. They did not think it was evil. They did not evil. think it was evil. They were amoral. Right. I don't think that they were amoral. I think that, that in their moral consciousness, what they were doing was good. Right? So I don't think that Hitler woke up in the morning and said, how can I be evil today? No. Um, right? So, so that's something to grapple with is, you know, is this sort of, uh, uh, you know, what we, uh, how we identify, you know, what is or isn't moral. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I think that that's also one of the things that this midrash might be a, a guide to, which is that if that, that the thing that nourishes life, that's the moral choice, right? So the, the tree of life is identified by, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, um, has all the waters of creation dispersed from under it, right? So, uh, so, you know, it's the tree of life, you know, it's Torah if it nourishes the rest of life. Right? And if it doesn't do, th- including yourself, but, and if it doesn't do that, then it's not Torah. Then it's not. Then it's not the moral choice. Um, so, uh, um, you know. So I think that uh, that that to me is um, is is uh, is is a piece of this uh, uh, calculus, which is you know not so much is you know, the choice between good and evil, but how do you know what the good is, yeah. right? Um, yeah, Hitler didn't disagree. He, he wasn't against Jews because he disagreed with theology. Right. Until right. The Nazis were. Right. So that's so <laughs> they that's disagreed with their theology. Right. So they didn't know anything about theology. Right. So that's well, so that's I, the final. I don't know that I would go that far, but yeah. I think it's that point of right. there's a great. I loved the show Borders. It was a show on. I think you can find it on Netflix or Hulu. And there's this scene where it's the International Criminal Court, and they research and they mm-hmm. like conduct investigations across international borders and then they bring them to the Hague for a trial and there's this one scene and it's actually dealing with a case in Ireland with a group of people in Ireland and this guy's just furious because someone has hurt his family by this group of people and it's like they're dogs they're not even human but like blah 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 like he's going off and the guy who's played by um, Richard uh, oh who played Snow in the Hunger Games anyway tall white hair and he goes there is no genocide that hasn't begun with those words right there like that you are not human you are that you're viewing yourself as getting rid of a plague so you actually justify your actions by saying that we have to do this because it's for a greater good which always leads me to the question of what are we saying we have to do in the name of good you're so demise evil what you're so demise evil you make it sublime. You elevate evil, and it becomes just good. So what I so what I would what I would how, what, what I would just kind of add to that, um, and, and maybe this this needs to be by way of closing because we're a little bit over time. Um, is um, so a couple of things to say. You know, one is I don't want to let the, the comment about Christianity hang. Um, I, I'm not I'm not certain that there is. Let me put it this way, so that there's not as many double negatives. I am certain that there is a read of Christianity that's not inherently anti-Semitic. Um, I know Christians who, um, who 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 approach their faith in a way that is not um, that doesn't uh, um, uh, uh, deny the uh, the the humanity of 
um, uh, the, the, the goodness of, the holiness of um, Jewish people or any other uh, group of people. Um, I don't think that it's, I certainly think that there is a, a, a long history within Christianity and especially Catholicism of not approaching the tradition that way. Um, but I don't think, and I think that the Catholic Church in particular, um, but there are other uh, uh, denominations too that haven't fully accounted for the anti-Semitism that has been prevalent in their history, and, and that's and and that's really really important, and, and has not been done. I think that there have been steps, but uh, but they they've been insufficient. Um, and uh, and so I think that, that that that's important, but I don't think that Christianity. That there's no read of Christianity that that isn't anti-Semitic. I think that that may be overstating it, in my view, too much. Um, I, uh, uh, so that's that's one piece. The second piece uh, is um, that um, um, uh, that um, the 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 anti-Semitism that. Uh, that that produced the Holocaust, or that that led to the Holocaust, was in some. I mean, is, is is certainly connected to the the legacy of of Christian anti-Semitism, um, but in some ways was a divergence from it. Um, Christian anti-Semitism, in, in in a certain respect, was a theological moral argument with the Jews. And uh, the anti-Semitism of Nazism, which is, I think, still present in the anti-Semitism of you know white nationalism today, um, is um, is a, a, like like you just referred to before, like an, an, an otherizing of uh, of Jews, <coughs> such that Jews are either subhuman or non-human, um, alien in some way, um, which which is there's a through line from anti, from from you know earlier Christian anti-Semitism of Jews being demonic and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but there's a, but there's a, a conspiratorial uh, uh, element of, of, of modern anti-Semitism uh, and, uh, and uh, an element of modern anti-Semitism that is about the denial of the humanity of, of Jews. Um, that is, I think, an important piece of the puzzle. And I think that that, um, by and large, um, is, is I mean may be present in some Christian theologies in some Christian spaces, um, but I think is not universal among Christians today. And the final thing I want to say, which I keep losing the train of thought for, let me get it back. Hold on one second. Um, oh, I, I want to say this, which I think is actually very Jewish and very connected to this midrash that we're looking at. So I did a dialogue uh, program last year with. Um, uh, that included Father uh, Michael Renninger of um, um, St. Mary's, right? Wonderful, wonderful uh, priest, a lovely guy. And he was talking, he, he, had, he had like a very like, uh, a close reading of the catechism in, the, in talking about heaven and hell. He said that the catechism says that heaven is union with God and hell is detachment from God. And, and in that sense... Um, heaven and hell may not only be referring to states of being in the afterlife, that they can refer to 
life right now. And if you uh, live your life in uh, in harmony with God, in union with God, then and we build societies uh, and communities that that are that are in harmony with with God, then we can create heaven here. We can live heaven here, and if not, we can live hell here. I think that that's a piece of what this midrash is saying about the tree of life, right? And what our church says, like it's chayim ba, right? That we that if if you hold on to it, it is eternal life. Right? It is life, life affirming and life sustaining to everybody. And if you detach yourself from it, if you're in some ways divorced from it, then it is death. Um, and you have that choice. You have that choice of life and death. Um, so I just I wanted to offer that as a as as a, as, um, as both I think a connection to this midrash and as a, a really uh, a teaching that's really sat with me uh, a lot of the past couple of years. Um, I thought it was really nice. Um, let's stop there. We'll move on to the look about the tree of knowledge next week.